Romans chapter 1, verse eight, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those who are, that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You can have a seat. Let's pray as we get started. Lord, uh, we come before you this morning with uh, humble hearts. I pray that we would come with humble hearts into this passage. Lord, a difficult passage, a passage that it's easier, it's easier sometimes to either skip over or it's easier to wield uh, and graciously, maybe with 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 a hammer, and and to not really, not really consider all that's going on, and all of who you are, and all of your character. Lord, I pray as we look at this passage this morning, and and the surrounding passages in the next couple of weeks, that we would get a full picture of who you are that it would sober us on the one hand and also motivate us to share your gospel and your grace and your truth with others. Lord, I pray that the gospel would be proclaimed from this church. Lord, I pray that it would change people's lives and, and change our community. Lord, I pray that we would be moved to send people from here to other places that have not heard the gospel, that do not have the gospel and share the gospel there as well. I pray that your word, your truth, your good news would transform our country and our world, Lord. 
I pray that we would solely place our hope in Jesus Christ and what he's done on our behalf. Pray all this in your name. Amen. I love, I've, I've said this before, I love to read biographies, preferably shorter biographies, because I, my attention span works that way, I guess, of Christians throughout history who God has worked through, who have had both struggles and successes. And I came across one of a guy that I had never heard of before, and so I want to share a little bit of it with you. His, his name is John Patton, but before you know a little bit about what John Patton did, and I can only scratch the surface this morning, uh, you need a little context. In, in 1839, in 1839, two missionaries landed on an island, Aromanga, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I believe it's called Aromanga, an island in what was then known as the New Hebrids, a strip of islands maybe 80 miles long, not far from Australia. And before that moment, when these two missionaries stepped on this island, to the best of anyone's knowledge, there had been absolutely no Christian influence in any way, shape, or form in those islands. Within minutes, these two missionaries were killed and eaten by cannibals. Cannibalism, infanticide, widow sacrifice were all common practices amongst these islanders in this 80-mile stretch of islands just a little bit off of the coast of Australia. Eighteen years after the deaths of these two missionary martyrs, John Patton, if I remember correctly, a, a Scottish man who had been having quite a bit of success in the ministry that he was in, felt called by God to these islands as a missionary, gave up what many thought was a highly successful ministry in a very uh, comfortable place to respond to the call of God to bring the gospel to these people who had never heard it. John Patton's love for God, his overwhelming desire to show the power of the gospel to change even the most unlikely, and his love for these people whom at the po that point he had never met before drove him. Where did John Patton get a perspective of the world and of these people that so influenced him to bring the gospel, to go halfway around the world to a new place and a new people, just as Paul who we see in our text writing this letter to the Romans, desiring for the Romans to help him to get to Spain, to bring the gospel to a place where it has not been heard before. How can these, both these men have this perspective of the world and of people to, to lead them to such boldness? Well, I think there are two ways, generally, that we could view the conduct of these islanders at their introduction to these two missionaries. The first response is to say, wow, how could such an extremely terrible place exist in the world? What happened to these people to make them so incredibly immoral that they would kill and eat people for just landing on their island? 
That response, I think, assumes that people without the, without the influence of the gospel, just people in general are born in a morally neutral position, that basically people are good and something has to happen to them in order to spoil them. There's a second response. It's a response of sadness, but not shock. A response that assumes that people are born inherently selfish and arrogant and sinful and opposed to God and all of his ways. The second response believes that the only hope for change personally and communally is the gospel. Church, I want to be very clear about this, and there's going to be a number of things as we go through this passage this morning that I'm going to try to clarify that I believe are often uh, mistaken thoughts that we see in the church and in Christianity today. But I want to be very clear about this. We're going to see this laid out very, very well in our passage today, that the Bible from Genesis to Romans to Revelation, without question, holds the second view of man. That we are not born morally neutral, that we are born inherently sinful and opposed to God. The first view that I shared seeks to erode the truth of the gospel and the the work of the church. The second seeks to uphold the gospel and encourages the work that God has called the church to do. And I think this is foundational to the gospel and Paul's explanation of the gospel here in Romans. Look, Look at the passage Look with me at the context. Last week we ended with Paul's expressing his eagerness to preach the gospel, right? In verse 15. And then he says that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. What's the righteousness of God? Well, you could say that the righteousness of God is who God is and what God does as the standard of rightness. That that who God is, his character, and what God does, his conduct is the standard of rightness. It defines what is right. But what's interesting is after verse 17, he doesn't actually give us a detailed description of the gospel. Not yet anyways. But I want you to know, because you maybe you haven't read ahead to it yet, that Paul will get there in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And so what we have here, starting in verse 18, is a sort of parentheses, if you will, in Paul's logic. You can imagine he says, hey, I'm eager to preach the gospel. The gospel is, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm unashamed of it. It's the, the power of God for salvation. It reveals his righteousness. But wait, before I tell you about that gospel, I need to explain something to you about what is revealed outside of the gospel, what is revealed before the gospel in the world. And so in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul presents a contrast that is foundational to understanding the gospel. It's like Paul's saying, hey, first, before I tell you what the gospel is, I need you to get this other thing. So let me spend two chapters explaining it. 
why it's so critically important and why Paul is moved to preach the gospel is all wrapped up in chapter 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 18, or verse 18 of chapter 1 says this, for the wrath of God, and this, and this verse, chapter, verse 18, is sort of a summary statement for everything that's going to happen, everything that Paul's going to explain for two chapters. So this is, this is all of it wrapped up in one sentence. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he's going to explain for the next two chapters all that unrighteousness, okay? What Paul is saying is that without the gospel, the wrath of God is being revealed against every single human being right now. Right now. But the gospel of God reveals the righteousness of God to and in mankind by contrast. Without the gospel, every person rejects God Every person will suppress the truth. Every person will be rightly judged by God and experience the consequences of that judgment. Because we suppress the truth, Paul has to explain for two chapters why everyone needs the gospel. Understand this, guys. You can't believe the gospel unless you understand your need for the gospel. If the gospel is a bridge to salvation, if it's a bridge to God, to a right relationship with God, you can't build a bridge unless you have somewhere on both sides of that river to anchor that bridge, right? And so Paul is like, hey, for two chapters, I'm gonna, I'm gonna anchor this bridge on why we need the gospel so that then I can explain what the gospel has done on the other side. Okay, I don't know if I've explained that enough. But I wanted you to get that because it's important because we're going to talk about this for four weeks, okay? It's going to take us four weeks to get through these two chapters. This week, we're going to talk about those who have completely rejected God, who are, who are just uh, have completely given... Uh, have completely disregarded morality from God's perspective. The next two weeks after that, we are going to talk about the religious moralists who have also abandoned the gospel, who may look a lot better, but are also under God's wrath. And then in the last week, Paul's going to do a sort of lightning round FAQ, if you will, answering a few of the questions that his readers may have, that, that he assumes his readers may have, because it's not his first time explaining this. But here's the bottom line I want you to get this morning. Jesus is the only means of salvation from God's wrath now and forevermore. I know that's wordy, but I couldn't think of a shorter way to say it. Jesus is the only means of salvation from God's wrath now and forevermore. Maybe you think, well, that, 
this whole thing, this whole wrath of God thing is a little cringy, Cody. I think that's how the kids say it today. Cringy, right? Ooh, that's cringy. I don't know. Didn't, didn't Jesus like, didn't Jesus like John 3, 16, right? God so loved the world. Well, I want, this is another thing I want to clear up. If you just read the next few verses after John 3, 16, right? Have you read them? Let me read them. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Oh, that, that sounds good. That's right. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Why? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. I want you to understand, when Paul says that the wrath of God is already being revealed on mankind without the gospel, he's saying the exact same thing Jesus said right here, that he came into the world because the world was already condemned. That's our starting position as humanity. And then he continues a few verses later, John 3, 36, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Shall not see life, meaning they never made it to life. They started with death. But the wrath of God, oh, Jesus even talks about the wrath of God, remains, remains on him. Doesn't come on him, remains on him. Okay. So Paul's logic here, this, I don't know, this sermon's going to end up being a little long, sorry. Paul's logic here is nothing more than Jesus's logic explained. So let's look at a few questions and Paul's answers and some, consider some ways it applies to our life. The first question is this, is God's wrath just? We talk about God's wrath. Is God's wrath just? Well, Paul answers this question in verses 19 through 21, look. First, he tells us that what can be known about God is plain to every person who's ever lived. This is the Bible's view. What can be known about God is plain to every person who has ever lived. There is no one who has walked the face of this earth to whom God has not given sufficient evidence of himself. No not just coincidental evidence, but intentional evidence. God has shown it. He has shown himself. Since the creation of the world in the things that are created, not just that a God exists, right? He's showing through everything that's created, not just that a God might exist, but that the God, him, himself, has been, should have been clearly perceived by every person. His invisible attributes are made visible in the fact of creation and through his actions in creation. That's what Paul is arguing here. Second, look at verse 21. It tells us, it explains that if a creator exists and if it's plain who he is, then it follows logically that he fully deserves all the honor and all the gratitude from all of his creation, right? I mean, we, we know this to be true, that if, that if we depend, if our entire existence, our very creation depends on, on God having created us, sustained us, then we owe all honor, all gratitude to that creator. 
He deserves 100% of it. He's not being arrogant or selfish. He's being right. To not take that would be a lie for him. Do you understand that? The person who says they believe God exists but has no honor or gratitude for him has missed him entirely. Instead of thinking, instead, our thinking has become futile. We see the evidence of him, but our reasoning is broken, and so we don't connect the dots, or our hearts are foolish. We can't think correctly about God because our hearts actually don't want to believe it. Do you understand? Our hearts, when we don't want to believe something, will cause our minds to justify the thing that we actually want to believe, even though it's apparent that that's not true. Hearts are incredibly deceptive things. And so Paul is laying some foundational truths here for the gospel. He says, one, God has adequately revealed himself in creation. We call this general or natural revelation, right? Two, every person fails to rightly recognize God on their own. And this is due not to any defect in God or what he's done, but is solely based on our failure as humans. And this isn't some people. This isn't like, oh yeah, those people do that. This is all of us. This is you. This is me before God. And we, when we think about wrath, I think part of the reason why we are immediately repulsed by that is because we've known someone, we've had someone in our life, maybe your own dad, who has expressed wrath in a very human way. The picture that comes in our brain is typically an unjust, over-the-top, emotional fit of rage that comes on for a bit, and then it goes away, and it does damage to the people in the immediate vicinity, and then we've got to kind of pick the pieces up, right? You've known someone who's been that way. But that's wrath in human terms with our sin and with our ignorance and with our impotence. God's wrath is different. It comes after patience, the Bible says. It's deliberate and it's purposeful. It's measured and it's exact to the crime. It's always against what is evil and what is bad for his creation. That's God's wrath. God's wrath is part of the revelation of his righteousness. You can't have God's rightness without his wrath as long as we're sinful, right? I want you to understand one other thing, and I think that this is oftentimes confused. Sometimes in the church, we get this idea that God the Father is this wrathful God, or God, the Old Testament God, is this wrathful God. And Jesus is kind of like the loving part, you know? Like, like mom was always nice to me, but dad was always kind of a mean jerk kind of a deal. So Jesus is like the loving spouse, and God the Father is like the mean one over here. But that's, that's, not, that's not what Scripture portrays. God, the Father, is the source of both wrath and love. That's the picture that the Bible gives. And Jesus 
is both mediator and judge. You understand that Jesus himself says, I am the one that the Father has given permission to judge, has given authority to judge every single person on the face of the earth. And I am the one, Jesus says, whom the Father in his love has sent to die on the cross as a mediation for humanity that deserves his wrath. You understand, you see, that God is the source. God the Father is the source of both love and wrath. And Jesus is executing that to us, whichever, whether we believe the gospel or not. I think it's an important clarification. That for you, if you are in Christ, God, it's not just Christ who loves you. God the Father has an overwhelming fountain of love that he's pouring out on you through Christ. And if you choose to reject God, God the Father has an abundance of wrath that he's pouring out on the world through Christ. Okay. The rest of the passage has two questions that it's going to answer kind of back and forth. First question, how has mankind rejected God? And Paul's going to describe here in these next verses three really, really bad trades that mankind makes. Really bad trades. Have you ever made a really bad trade before? Anyone? Okay, so when I was a kid, Halloween, Easter, I was like third down the line, fourth down the line actually, amongst like the cousins and all the kids. And I would get suckered into these bad trades where it was like, hey, Cody, give me your Reese's peanut butter cup and I'll give you three dum-dums. I'll tell you who the dum-dum was. That's a bad trade, man. I'll take one peanut butter cup over like 20 of every other candy. Like that's just, so my brother knew that and he knew I was gullible enough. And so he would sucker me into these trades, right? It's a bad trade. And so Paul's going to describe three really bad trades that humanity makes. And then the second question is, how is God, how is God's wrath being revealed right now? How is it being revealed? And Paul's going to describe three ways that God's wrath is revealed. And so we're going to see this kind of in, in um, three parallel statements. He's going to say, hey, here's a trade. Now here's how God's wrath is being revealed. Here's a trade that we make. Here's how God's wrath is being revealed. He's going he's to do that three times. So let me... Let me break this down one by one. We'll just kind of go in order. But I want you to pay attention. I want you to pay attention to something. Because these bad trades, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're trading something real for something that is an illusion. We're trading something that is substantial for something that is fake. And this is the trick that Satan has done since the very, very beginning Satan has nothing new, nothing original, nothing genuine to offer anyone. The only thing he offers is fake imitations of what God has for you. That's the only thing he offers. From the beginning to the end throughout the Bible, that's all that he offers, okay? And that's all he offers now. All right.
Actually, one more thing I, wa- I want to explain before we get into these, these traits. I, wa- I, want, I want you to understand what it means when, when it says that God is giving up us. This phrase, God gave up, God handed over, depending on what translation you have, to, to, to our sinful actions. Paul is, is taking a phrase, handing over, straight from the Old Testament, where God gives over Israel's enemies to be defeated by them in battle, or Israel over to another nation as punishment for their idolatry. So Israel's rejecting God, rejecting God, rejecting God, and God says, I'm going to give Israel over. I'm going to use the Assyrians, or I'm going to use the Babylonians, or I'm going to use the whoever to, to give Israel over because of their idolatry. To say that this giving over is just natural consequences of our sin is true in part, but only in part. Because who, who has ordered the world to work the way it does? And even that doesn't quite do justice to the phrase. To say that God is just passively letting them go, like, like if I, uh, the windy day here and the, and the wind is blowing everything this way and I was on the other side and I just kind of let a boat go and I just kind of let the wind take it where it went. That's not doing justice to the idea here of God's giving over. One commentator put it like this. He says, God does not simply let the boat go. He gives it a push downstream. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment his crime has earned, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. So that's what's going to be explained here as Paul talks about these trades and these handing overs that happen. So the first trade is in verse 23. Mankind rejected God by trading the glory of God for images of created things. We trade, friends, we trade seeing and experiencing the glory of the only one who has glory in himself for things who derive their lesser glory from him. Do you understand? It's like seeing the light of the full moon. Have you ever gone out at night on on a night where the moon is just as big as it can be? And you can like see, you can see almost like it's daylight, but, but not quite, right? It's so bright. It's like seeing the light of a full moon and saying we don't want the sun anymore because the moon is bright enough for us. But what we fail to recognize is the light of the moon only comes because the sun is shining on it, right? That's the only reason why the, the, the moon is lit up anyways. And so we're trading the source of the light for an object that only derives its light from that source. It's foolish. But we do it and we don't even realize it. And so the first handing over we see in verse 24, it says, therefore, as a result of that exchange that humans make, God gave them over to the lust of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring, to the dishonoring of their bodies. It's interesting you're going to see three times Paul talks about dishonor, that what, what, after the trade that we make, what God hands us over to is something that's dishonoring to us, that's dishonoring in us. And so it's interesting that as we don't give God the honor he deserves, we are actually given over to dishonor. 
that we can't have honor unless we actually derive it from the source, okay? There is a distinct, I want you to understand, there is a distinct sexual nuance here to this sin. Just as the trades we make generally revolve around idolatry, worshiping something other than God as God, the sin that Paul will highlight in each of these things tends to be sexual. Why is that? Does that, does that initially seem weird to anyone else? You're either like, why is Paul like so gravitating towards sexual sin? I think people sometimes ask, why are Christians so concerned with sexual sins in the world today? I think that's a valid question to ask. The reason is because the Bible is particularly concerned with them. I want you to understand that. The Bible is particularly concerned with sexual sin. We see that in how much it talks about it. There is a biblical relationship between idolatry, choosing to worship something other than God as God, and sexual sin. In Genesis 2, sex is, from the beginning, part of a marriage covenant. It's part of that covenantal relationship that should happen between a husband and a wife. A primary illustration of God's relationship to his people in the Old Testament and Jesus' relationship to the church in the New Testament is marriage. It is a marriage covenant. And so when Israel commits idolatry in the Old Testament, God calls it idolatry. Or, and when he commits idolatry, he calls it idolatry. Thank you. I can't speak English today. They've broken their covenant with God, their marriage covenant with God, to have relations, if you will, with little g gods. Okay? To do things with other idols that they only should do in relationship with the true God. And so, sex at its best, at its best, and it is a very wonderful thing, let me say, in a loving and intimate marriage between a man and a woman is the most God-honoring and glorifying action between two human beings. And I, I, I feel very confident in this statement, so I'm going to say it again because I don't think we talk about it enough in church. And I think that is a disservice to all of our Christian marriages, okay? Sex, at its best, let me break this down, in a loving and intimate marriage between a man and a woman is the most God-honoring and glorifying action between two human beings. All right, we got that? Okay. Go glorify God later today. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that. We know, we know that because God uses it to illustrate his covenant with us. That's not weird, okay? It's only weird because we make it weird with all of our terrible perversions of sex. That's why it's weird because of our sin, not because of it, okay? So it's a perfect tactic for Satan to use 
because it cuts at the very most important things about our relationship with God. His distortion of sex is a distortion of marriage, and that is a distortion of our relationship with God. And so when marriage is distorted, we don't get that reflection of God's relationship with us that we ought to get as we see marriages. Thus, when we talk about exchanging the glory of God for a poor image, there's a perfect corresponding sin. Sex and sexual sin is a perfect corresponding sin to illustrate our running after sad alternatives, right? And listen, guys, I know, I know probably in a room like this that all of us have done something in the realm of sexual sin that we wish we hadn't done, okay? I get that. I get that. And thank goodness for God's grace. And thank goodness that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God to us and is the power of God for salvation from every sin. But it does us no service to not honestly look at what those things are, okay? And so the second trade in verse 25, the truth about God for a lie. When we try to make God out to be anyone or anything other than who he says he is, we are running after a lie. And that's part of Satan's first temptation to Eve, right? What did Satan first say to Eve? Did God really say? Did God really say? And then Eve's response is, no, God said this, but it was actually not actually what he said. And thus it begins. We begin to run after a lie about who God is. And so then the second handing over in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, right? Dishonoring of the body, dishonorable passions now. Do you see what's happening? Paul is trying to paint a fully orbed picture of the problem. People traded God for other outward images, so God gave them up to dishonor of their bodies. Then they run after lies. Uh, now he gives up their hearts to dishonorable passions. So you can imagine what's going to come next, right? These passions, though, lead logically right into the next trade, the third trade in verses 26 and 27. The trade is natural relations for unnatural ones. Now, Paul is being very descriptive, more so than in the last two trades. He's pinpointing not just sin, not just sexual sin, but homosexuality in particular. Why? Why is he doing that? Remember, this whole section started with the fact that we should know God in creation and in his created order, and yet we refuse to recognize him. And I think that's really critical to why Paul is pinpointing homosexuality here. Paul is saying in terms of sin, in terms of sexual sin, homosexuality is the prime example of idolatry because it should be self-evident that it opposes the created order that he has made. It should be self-evident to us that that is not natural, that it is unnatural, that it is not how we were created to function. When Paul says natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, the language here that he uses is just, frankly, undeniable. Listen. 
Homosexuality is the incarnation of atheism and sexual sin. You cannot get there without denying that God created and designed people in a particular way. It's a complete denial of God as the creator. And we ought to know this to be the case because it's observable in nature. Sometimes Christians ask, man, isn't, isn't any sexual sin bad? Is homosexuality really, like, you talk about it like it's worse than, say, heterosexual sex outside of marriage. And I think that this brings up a larger misunderstanding that, that is also prevalent in the church that I want to I talk about for a second. You know, it's often said that all sins are equal. Well, all sins are equal. I mean, it's, they're all bad, right? They're all, they're all equal. And that, I think, is misleading and false. While it's true that any sin is sufficient to cause our need for Christ's salvation, that even one sin is short of God's glory and, and we need Christ and we need the gospel because of it, it's not true, it is not true that the Bible considers all sin equal. It's just not true. Whether we look at the Old Testament law and God's punishments for different sins, whether we look at the lists of sins that Paul details in his letters in the New Testament, the way that Paul or John or Jesus or any of the New Testament writers speak about certain sins and the gravity of them in our lives, it is clear that certain sins come with greater levels of depravity, greater levels of moral corruption, and certain sins come with greater consequences to ourselves and to others around us, right? And we know, we know that's true. Just inherently, we know that's true, right? We can, we can read Jesus' words in Matthew 5, and we can say that lust is related to and comes from the same place that idolatry, that idolatry comes from. But we would not say that they're the same thing right? If you looked lustfully at another woman or you committed adultery with her, that matters to your spouse, which one it is, because it's different, because one is worse than the other, because one has more consequence than the other, right? So is homosexuality worse? Well, particularly to Paul's point here about the denial of the existence of God by recognizing his created order or, or not recognizing his created order, rather. Yeah, I think the answer is unequivocally yes. Yes, it is. You can't read this passage honestly without saying that yes, there is greater moral corruption here and yes, there are greater consequences to the people who are doing that and to others around them. Homosexuality is a greater exchange on the part of mankind. And the results and results in a further handing over and thus further consequences. And we see that at the end of 27, it says uh, they, they receive a due penalty for their error. And guys, this is why Christians are opposed to homosexuality. It's dishonoring to God and the Bible 
It's, and it says that, that it's imminently harmful to the person participating in it and to the community around them and society in general. This is the belief of the Bible. And I know that's not popular in the world today, but it is what God's word says. That it is not beneficial to people. It's not beneficial to others. So we can be We can be characterized as being mean towards people who are homosexual. But in reality, if someone is doing something that is harmful to themselves, the most loving thing we can do is to say, no, that's not okay. No, I don't, I don't want you to do that because I believe that hurts you and it hurts others. We must find a way out of love for people and a desire for them to know the gospel, to speak that truth, not in condescending ways, but out of grace and love and a desire for them to know Christ, to know their creator. Guys, I get it. Most of us know someone who's right in the middle of, of, of that. Most of us have a friend have a family member. And I'm not going to say that this is easy. And I recognize at this point that this might sound disheartening and that your heart may want to go, no, I don't want to believe that. But I want you to stick with me because I think Romans 1 is actually, I think it's actually the most hopeful passage. I think it's actually the most hopeful passage for someone who's right in the middle of this because it offers the only solution. The only solution. Okay? We'll get to that in just a second. But first, this leads Paul logically to the final handing over that God has. To the giving of humanity over to a debased mind. The result of not acknowledging God as God is a total confusion about what is even moral and immoral. If you've ever been baffled by what the world calls good versus what the world calls evil, the Bible already predicted that that would happen. Because the Bible says they're confused. Okay? And this opens the door to all kinds of unrighteousness among us. And Paul gives this huge list of all sorts of things. And let's be honest, when we read that list, all of us fall in that list somewhere, right? All of us. And he ends with this statement in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. See, these unrighteous actions come from a suppression of the truth, but even if you don't actually do these things, if you approve of them even, Paul says, man, you're in the same boat. You can't, you can't do that. You can't approve of them. Because as soon as you approve of them, you take away the right recognition of our need for the gospel. 
And all of this can be a very bleak picture, but it doesn't have to be. Remember, Paul has set the revelation of God's wrath and an opposition to the revelation of his righteousness in the gospel. He's saying this, this is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel and why I'm so unashamed of it because it's the only hope for relief from this wrath that is already on people. The people right now are living under this wrath, under this punishment, under this judgment. They are hurting. And I need to preach the gospel. And I'm unashamed if someone says, you're stupid, Paul. It's just foolish. You're totally wrong. I don't care because I know that this is the only power of salvation for where these people are at. Because it's the only power of salvation for where Paul was at. Paul's experienced this power. No matter the extent of the idolatrous and sinful trades that we make, the power of the gospel is sufficient to save us. No matter the extent of God's giving over, if we still have life in our lungs, if we still have breath in our lungs to confess Jesus as Lord, there is the opportunity for his grace and salvation. I want you to understand that. So if you are not a believer yet, please do not live under the wrath of God for one minute longer. Yeah, people who say, oh, well, that, that person accepted Christ on their deathbed. Man, they really, they got the best of both worlds, right? No, they didn't. They lived an entire life without the love of Christ. Man, what a miss. How terrible as a Christian to say that. Do we even understand what we have in Christ? Sorry, I'm getting a little fired up right now. I just, it just ticks me off so bad. But Jesus Christ is everything to me. I had nothing before him. I was lost, hopeless. Christian, what do we do with this? We've got to be honest about our sin, okay? I think that's where it starts for us Christians. We've got to be honest about our sin, our own sin. We've got to be honest about other people's sin. Like, I get it. We want to avoid topics like this. We want to avoid... We want to avoid it. We want to avoid situations where we have to come face-to-face with our own sin. We want to avoid situations where we have to come face-to-face with our loved ones' sins or our friends' sins or other people's sins. But in so doing, we miss the full experience of God's love and grace. Have you ever, have you ever seen the ocean? You've seen the ocean? Gone to the ocean, seen it from a distance? How vast it is? Man, I remember the first time I walked up onto the ocean and I was like, I can't see land on the other side. What the heck? I'm from Kansas, man. That's weird. You've seen it from a distance, man. It looks so peaceful and still, doesn't it? Out there, miles away, you look at it and you're like, it's just perfectly still. You're wrong. We, we know it's vast when we look at it from a distance, but we don't have any idea of its power, right? 
But when you come up close to the ocean, to, up to the shore, to the, to the rocky places, the, the crags and the, the edges, right? And you see the ocean rolling in and crashing against the rocks over and over and over. Every barrage of its powerful tide smoothing out the rocks bit by bit. It's, it's there. It's, it's right on the shore that you realize not just how vast the ocean is, but just its sheer overwhelming might in comparison to you. That's where you can hear the deafening sound of the waves. That's where you can feel the salty spray on your face and you can know and experience the vast love of, and grace of God when you come close to the rocky sin of your heart, when you come close to the rocky sin in other people's lives. But unless you do that, you will never experience the power of the gospel doing its gracious work over and over and over again. You can look from a distance and you can know God's love is vast, but it's not until you come up close that you experience it. Man, unless you pull up close to the messiness of other people's lives, you see the rocks with their edges. You skin your knees on them. The spray stings your eyes. You'll miss the opportunity to see God's power of grace in people's lives. But the more you know and experience the power of the gospel, the more, like Paul, you want to spread that power, right? And that's the second application. We gotta live, we gotta live like the gospel is the only hope because, friends, it is the only hope. The only hope to see people saved for eternity, yes, but it's the only hope to see lives transformed right now, right now. And when lives begin to be transformed and the gospel begins to do its work and work itself out in, in, in our life and in the lives of others, and it'll work itself out in societies and in cultures and, and, and it'll transform the world. It will. It has. It has. John Patton and his wife went to the new Hebrids in 1858. Within a year, he hand-dug graves for his wife and his newborn son. He was constantly at risk of death by fever, arrow, axe, and he was finally driven off the island four years later. Had the gospel lost? Patton was determined to show the social elites of his day who thought they knew better that the power that the gospel had the power to change even the most unlikely person's life, to save anyone. And so for four years, he went back to Australia, he went back to Great Britain, and he raised money for missionary work on the islands and around the world. And God used those years to raise up an entirely new generation of men and women to the mission field. And he revived hundreds of churches by the, the stories and the word that John Patton would share there. But then John married again, and him and his new wife, they went back to the islands this time to a different, smaller island, an island only seven miles wide. And there he spent the next 41 years of his life 
sharing the gospel, translating the language into the Bible. He lived there until he was 81 years old. Today, over 92% of the population of that country identifies itself as Christian because of the work of Patton and others. Now, certainly there are many who may not truly be following Jesus, but many, many who are and continue to spread the gospel to new generations. And that culture has been completely transformed. Cannibalism, gone. Infanticide, gone. Widow sacrifice, gone. Virtually wiped out of their culture by the gospel, not by education. Though people learned to read as Patton diligently turned their language into a written language and translated it into the Bible, not by financial progress were they changed, though odds are that there was a lot of progress there as well. When, when it turns out when one person isn't totally afraid that the other person is going to kill them all the time, that you can actually make some economic headway. But those weren't the things that helped them. No, they were saved and transformed by one simple truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And 48 years after those men were killed, those two missionaries were killed and eaten, Patton wrote this about it. He said, quote, Thus were the new Hebrids baptized with the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. So the gospel can be. Let's pray. God, we confess that we are sinful. We confess that we turn to a lot of other things instead of you. And we confess that oftentimes we're very, very, we have very short memories and we forget what you've done in our lives and what you've saved us from. We ignore our sin and, and thus we fail to recognize how much grace you've actually poured out on us. Lord, I pray this morning that you would remind us not just of our sin and our sinfulness and our rejection of you, but, but in reminding us of that, that you would simultaneously Remind us of what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that your, your reminding us of our sin would keep us in a constant place of humility where we ought to be, but then your constant reminding us of your cross would keep us in a constant place of joy, no matter what the circumstances are. Lord, I pray that you would move us, God, that you would move people uh, from, from our church to share the gospel with those in our own neighborhoods, in our own communities who do not know you, who need the power of the gospel in their life. And God, I pray that you would move people from, from our own community to, to go to the far reaches like John Patton did, to people who have never heard the gospel. Who never hear the hope of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you move people to go there? I thank you. I thank you, and I know that you are right now. I pray all this in your name.
Amen.